Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to all new, all different Uncanny X's for Podcast, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-titles 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. And I'm Nico. And we hope you guys survive the experience because today we have a special treat for you. After covering the Contest of Champions and a number of other slightly lackluster stories, as well as our continuing feed covering the Dawn of X, the emergence of Jonathan Hickman's breathtaking new run on House and Powers of X slash 10, we're finally back to discuss the X-Men and all of their magnificent glory. And it's not just any magnificent glory. No, no, no. Much like the show HTML, where Kevo, my husband, Jonah's boyfriend, and I talk about the amazingness of the Alien Legacy franchise, we are also turning our attention to BIG SPACE! What's in big space, you ask? Well, the X-Men go to space to find out, or I guess they're kind of plucked out to space over and over again? Yeah, and this is no exception to that. Yeah, but before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other exciting things going on on the channel. As I mentioned, Jonathan Hickman has launched his now legendary already run over on House of X and Powers of Ten. Now, you might think it's edgelording at its best, you might think it's a breath of fresh air, or maybe you just don't give a shit either way, but this is something that comic book shops are having trouble keeping in stock in a way the X-Men have not seen in years. Jonah, it's so exciting that you're talking about it with me on the Dawn of X feed. What was it like trying to jump back a good 40 years to these iterations of these characters? It was a pretty interesting blast from the past to look at the different artwork to see how comic books are told because in newer media comics are much more focused on the art so there's less dialogue clogging up the page as opposed to these older issues that have dialogue literally just basically covering the art we're basically just reading text boxes majority of the time but it's still pretty interesting because not that I'm not enjoying Jonathan Hickman's run I think it's actually pretty fantastic but because I don't know everybody's story and I don't know how we got to the beginning part of it yet I'm really excited to go back and to continue learning where the stepping stones came from. I completely agree. And when you're talking about the stepping stones of the X-Men, especially the stepping stones of the X-Men as it involves space, it's very hard not to talk about the issues we have at hand today. Today we're going to be covering Uncanny X-Men 154 through 157 by Chris Claremont, Dave Cockrum, and Bob Weakett. This is the first brood saga of the X-Men. It introduces Deathbird, a Ms. Marvel villain, to the pages of X-Men. And this thing was nuts. Whether it's that first issue that is nearly completely from Scott and Storm's perspective, or it's the incredible development of Kitty and Kurt's relationship, this is a major turning point for the X-Men in a very important way. Right off the bat, the first few pages are the two leaders of the X-Men sparring. It's not actual battle, but man, Claremont loves opening on these training montages. Other than Scott's big ol' ass up in your face, what were your thoughts on this first few pages? It's pretty interesting because... 
both Scott and Storm talking about leadership and what it means to be the leader of the X-Men, they both agree that they're both pretty great at it and amazing, but neither one of them actually really wants it. Scott doesn't really want to step up to the plate to be the leader right now, and not that Storm doesn't enjoy being a leader, but she kind of prefers not having a lot of that responsibility. So it's pretty interesting to see that nobody really wants to lead the X-Men. But I appreciate that they can have this heart-to-heart moment and actually just be comrades and friends in this fun training montage, but also still talk about something serious that they are the only two that can talk about it. I agree. They're the two that have to lead the X-Men. Other than a couple of art issues, like a lot of the sweat they put on Storm kind of making her look a little scaly, I for the most part think this is a pretty fun, quick introduction. I really enjoy Cockrum's art and the expressive storytelling that Claremont employs on the pages that follow, especially the space sequence with Corsair is tremendous. The color pops. It's a good storytelling pace. And while I enjoy the Carol stuff on the interlude on the island, I was very disappointed in Wolverine snapping at Kitty. The rest of that scene was okay. Although, again, Xavier reading Kurt's mind. I guess maybe I don't like the island scene that much. Jonah, the issue begins to hop from space to the island that the X-Men just fought Magneto on, then back to space, then back to the mansion. It's a pretty quick cut, but it moves the story along. Where did that take you as somebody who's had to like jump out of the story and jump back in and jump out? How did it feel coming back to the X-Men in this moment, having just left them on Kitty's fairy tale? They're going to have four issues to tell this entire story, but they have a lot to get in first. The severe cut of everybody kind of being all over the place is a little jarring. We're only left with Scott, Storm, and Corsair once we stop cutting to the island, so it's nice that we got a little heads up of this is where they are and what they're doing, but it feels like that could have actually even been the first scene, and then just go straight from Storm and Scott into Corsair and flow from there. I thought you were saying go straight into Storm and Scott's intercourse. (laughs) Oh man, this show. I agree though, because this four-part epic is such a great story, but when I think about it, Deathbird and the Brood don't appear until the second issue. We spend so much time just destroying the mansion this issue that it's kind of hard to understand how this represents a fourth of the story. Ultimately, the four chapters of this story do feel decidedly different. The first chapter taking place primarily between Scott, Corsair, and Storm, with a few interludes here and there. The second issue, bringing the X-Men to Earth to get some information, and it's super jarring and kind of disjointed. There's a couple of fights, we go up to space, we just keep segmenting out. So the more I'm talking about it out loud, the more I'm sort of shocked how much I love this story. But yeah, no, even more I'm talking about it out loud, I still really love this story. Oh, absolutely. I can completely agree and see why you would love this story, because it is a pretty amazing story. But there are some little hiccups that probably nowadays you can look back at with hindsight that you can fix and make it even better. Okay, so all hideous monster creatures out on the table. I mean, the brood are just alien. Absolutely. That was my first thought. I mean, you know what? I ain't even mad. Nobody's mad. We're not upset with Chris. We're not. We're not upset. We just want it. Chris, we just want to talk about it. We love it. We think it's terrific. Maybe you don't need this and the Angari going forward, buddy. Just, you know, pick the demon carn you want. But just pick the demon carn you want, buddy, and you can have one. You can definitely have one. Everybody gets one. And you can definitely have a race that's inspired and looks like the aliens from Alien, but not everything. You can't keep using it. That's not fair. That's not fair to other franchises. You're so good at mutants, you can't suck up all the good aliens, too. No, let's not. You can't can't get everything, which is what they're going to tell Chris eventually in the future. Well, I mean, Chris Claremont is going to go on to create some of my all-time favorite alien races, not the least of which is the Technarch 
Turkey alongside Bill Sienkiewicz, who will show up in our next episode. But I, you know, goddamn, the the brood really look like Alien. And while we're not quite at their life cycle yet, they kind of breed like Alien. And the whole thing is just so on the nose. But do you know what Alien didn't have? A murderous bird lady. Oh, you mean Lalandra's estranged and exiled older sister? I sure do. Look, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I love the Shi'ar. There are so many cool Shi'ar warrior bird ladies. It's like an entire aviary of crazy warrior women. It's an Amazonian alien airy for us to appreciate and be allured by. And I think Deathbird is the bomb shit. I'm going to start things off, though, with Deathbird does not ever have more more than 20 appearances in a decade. So don't get too excited. Before we can even get to this wondrous bird lady, I think we should talk about the elephant in the room of Scott learning that Corsair is his father and becoming a giant baby about it. Now listen, when I was talking about this with Nico, my entire feelings on Scott realizing and learning who Corsair is, is I understand that he's upset and he's absolutely allowed to be upset that his father, who he thought was dead for so long, is now standing right in front of him. But him directing so much anger at Storm and Corsair for not really an apparent reason and I don't think that much anger was justified at either of them looking at it from Corsair's perspective is he thought his two children were dead and he thought his wife was dead why would he return to earth when he had to escape so many times And one of the things about Christopher Summers is he was a major and the man had seen war and he believed this was his time to be a man of peace. And it's all taken from him so quickly. You become a victim of your environment just as much as you are the pilot of your own ship. And I can't imagine he would want to come back to Earth, the broken, damaged man he'd become. And frankly, he was hanging out with the Star Jammers. If you had a chance to hang out with the Star Jammers, would you come home? One of their names is Chode. Not even that. Would you come home to your two kids, Alex and Scott? No. No, I, no, no, neither. Neither one. No. Space orphans. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So, uh, so Scott's kind of like Storm. I can't believe you knew that my dad was my dad the entire time. And I didn't know that dad was my dad. Who else knew that my dad was my dad? And she's like, your girlfriend knew that your dad was your dad. And he's like, I can't believe my girlfriend knew that my dad was my dad and told you, but not me. It was pretty amazing. Scott was like, well, why did you tell me Storm? And Storm was like, well, Jean didn't want me to tell you. And he was like, well, why did she? tell me and then Christopher was like I didn't want her to tell you and Scott was like mm. right and like you just kept expecting somebody to pull out the gene orb and like look at her longingly <sighs> I was actually expecting Christopher to say well somebody else told me not to tell you <laughs> and it just keeps going on a long chain Deken told me not to tell you We finally get the Charlie nonsense out in the open. Wolverine has been calling Charles Charlie for like eternity. And Charles is just kind of taking it sitting down. No. And so he's finally like, stop that. And Logan's like, whatever you say, Charlie. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Logan's not going to (laughs) stop. Yeah, not so much. He will come to have a great admiration and respect for Xavier. That I'm sure he already has now, but, uh, you know, it's at the same time, Logan's older than Xavier. So, you know, it's a little tough. It's a little tough. So, okay, now Scott, Storm, and Corsair go on this crazy, wacky, three men in an exploding mansion adventure, and the X-Men finally get brought in, and everybody's up in space, and it turns out, essentially, Deathbird, using the Sidri and the Brood, have uprooted Lalandra as Majestrix of the Shi'ar, and she has installed her own puppet murder government, and the X-Men need to help save the dead. Okay. 
And the only way they can do this is if they leave two hostages. So Xavier, for the second time this arc, doing some not-so-nice shit, like psychically pummel fucks Kitty, full of Shi'ar brains, and Kitty's like, ah! And like, passes out. Like, first of all, she says she's scared, and then Xavier does this, and then she passes out. And Kurt's just like, I guess I'm in charge of Kitty now. And the two of them remain in space, so that the X-Men can go hang out at the Avengers Mansion, where Tigra's kind of like, Logan, if we don't get it in, I'm gonna claw your face off. And Logan was like, Tigra, I was expecting you to do that when we get it in, so stop. Right, not right now. But I do want to say... The weirdest part of this issue is that it was kind of like, well, Alonjo was on Earth this entire time. I don't really want to believe that. That was just really weird that, I, I don't know. I just found that part weird that, that the Admiral was like, well, we traced Alondra's traces or whatever back to Earth. <laughs> We traced the traces! So, <laughs> so once the X-Men are back on Earth, kind of the dumbest fight ever happens? Okay, I love this arc. I think I mostly love this arc for the Kitty Curtain space stuff. And I love any time that Storm is just walking around in a fabulous outfit. Oh my god. If you don't believe that Storm is the fashion icon of the X-Men, you actually thought it was Kitty. You've been wrong. I mean, I'm going to start trying to make this happen, but I mean, Storm Sirianoed that walk. So I'm all about it. But there's an unfortunate part of this issue where the X-Men are just kind of like, do dee da we're just walk. Ah, we're under attack! We're under attack! It's a bird lady! And so Deathbird attacks with her Psycho Ray, and the Brooder kind kind of there somewhere in the distance and all the X-Men team up and they start to fight and the fight's one of those fights where I'm like I'm not really sure how this is holding all of the X-Men and also Tigra but the most interesting part is at one point they're like where'd Colossus go and then they find him at the end of the issue like super fucking impaled but that's the cover of the issue so I'd been waiting for it the entire time this is one of the times I am very grateful that Marvel created an edict that no first run cover can contain information information about the plot of the issue yeah it's um took away a little bit of that shock factor of seeing colossus in that state of will he survive or will he not and it was just it was just weird because he was just left unattended and the entire fight was just weird and just convoluted and really the only reason why the x-men didn't win faster is because of facing new alien technology but even then weird fight that they just happened to stumble upon but then charles gets kidnapped yeah there was a number of things in this fight that didn't really work for me i actually thought corsair and storm fighting was really needless it was undone in two pages and then you've got corsair choking out scott until xavier breaks him free and then xavier's kidnapped and xavier okay so xavier's kidnapped and he's immediately given to like he and lalandra are like thrown in a dungeon together which that was a really weird choice and but what's weirder for me i'm reading it this whole time and i'm like there's no way it's really lalandra there's gotta be a trick. I mean, I've read this before. That's a trick, right? No, she's really just giving him what he wanted, making it easier for the X-Men to save them all at once. Like, what's happening? This is very bad planning. So then Lalandra's like, I'm gonna fucking kill you, bird bitch! And like, <laughs> Deathbird's like, I don't think so. And I just, I don't know. Maybe I only like the kitty and Kurt parts of this. I don't know. Oh, I completely forgot the best part. The reason why the X-Men were giving so much time to be able to find Lalandra is because Charles pulled his imperial slam piece rank and told everybody no 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 we're gonna go look for her you can't kill the earth you can't destroy the earth no 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 <laughs> 
And so, and then the laundry was like to her sister, don't touch my Imperial slam piece. And then she got zapped by a wall. And then her sister was like, you know, I could have killed you if I wanted to, but I didn't, but I could if I wanted to, which doesn't make sense because if her whole thing is she wants to be the queen and the Imperial Empress, why has she not just killed Lalandra now? Because she literally can't usurp the throne as long as Lalandra is alive. Weird cliche villain of explaining your plan, not doing what you should be doing to move that plan forward. Weird, giving enough time for the heroes to save them. I'm just starting to think about the number of people that just give Charles money and power like all the time. And sex. <laughs> I'm just starting to become really uncomfortable with the power. Is telepathy is... I don't, I don't like it. No. So I will say this. Kitty and Kirk get the best scenes of them just being friends and trying different outfits with, with basically an image transducer. And it's kind of funny that Kurt's like, Kitty, why are you playing with this? When we fully know well that Kurt likes to play with his image transducer. Is that what we're calling it nowadays? Is that not what it's called? Oh, I was saying that Kurt likes to play with his image. So... <laughs> I think some of the things she transforms into are a lot of fun. I like the quick Darth Vader nod. That's Claremont saying, man, I love space. And I think Kitty and Kurt have a really fascinating point in the story because don't get me wrong. Colossus really did get like gored a hundred percent and they see it and they believe he's dead. And I'm not trying to be like, but Kitty's first adventure with the X-Men is Dark Phoenix Saga, which did result in Jean dying. But her second adventure with the X-Men, they saw Kurt die and he came right back. Like, the X-Men and death, I think it's just really silly that they're immediately like, oh no, Colossus is definitely for goods he's dead. But one of the things about this arc is that it gets almost difficult to keep up with everything happening because so much happens. That first issue is the Sidri blowing up the mansion and the trio escaping. The second issue sets up that Deathbird and the Brood are here to kill not just the Shi'ar, but anybody who stands in their way. At the end of that issue, Colossus is left for dead the x-men defeat deathbird and the brood at the end of 156 but that still leaves the shiar invasion of earth for 157 and it just starts to be so layered but one of the things i love about it is by giving the x-men the opportunity to defeat deathbird and the brood in 156 kitty and kurt also got to save the day in their own way in 157 they really did and it just shows why kitty is on the x-men again and know there's something i kind of bring up in every episode we've talked about the main uncanny run we're doing but it's really important to hammer in this idea that kitty fits in here because she is so young part of her character is that she does fit in she is the new girl on the block and that's really important that, that that's part of her role is that she continues to prove that she's important and every time i see these moments of kitty i always think back to john burns quote of his original idea for her being the normal girl well there's not that much special about her and to that i just keep saying well then why would she ever be in the x-men all the x-men are special in their own right and provide something x-men don't actually have room for anybody normal no i don't think any mutant can ever be quote-unquote normal and i completely agree with what you're saying when anybody complains about a quote-unquote mary sue or gary stew sure there are insidious tropes that i would rather not see pop up in my storytelling but i don't think the idea of making your main character dynamic and fascinating is a bad thing i don't want to read about boring average characters that blend in with every other boring average character i want characters that grab my attention kitty kurt even colossus and cyclops each one of them proves why we love them whether it's the fact that after his injury colossus enters a medipod and gets knitted up by the star jammers and goes immediately back into battle or that he's out trying to help repair the spaceship in 157 these are people whose constitutions are greater than we can believe in many cases and it leads to exciting stories about heroes we want to be like and we want to know more about the art 
part of telling a superhero story is making the incredible seem possible. And sometimes that takes a larger-than-life character. One of the things I love the most about this arc is Kitty's whimsy. She still loves playing with that image transducer. As a matter of fact, Kitty's ploy to save the day is genius, and in many ways, I believe something only Kitty could come up with. Kitty uses the image transducer to disguise herself as the Dark Phoenix. Now, the only problem I have with this entire plan is I find it hyper-illogical that she would be able to fool Oracle. Oracle would be able to sense the immensity of the psychic force of the Phoenix having been not just reborn, but right the fuck in front of her, so that Kitty has to be like, no, stop running from me, is kind of like, is this really the psychic that was able to defeat the entire X-Men or not? Yeah, that part probably could have gone a little bit better with when Oracle was taken by Kurt to help put this plan into action. She probably should have known right away, but she was dazzled. She probably didn't know what was going on. And that does happen with psychics if they're in not focusing on their powers and they can't, you know, probe everything at once like they're usually able to do. Things can get kind of a little haywire with them. So I can I can buy it, but I'm more inclined to return it for something that would have been better. But before we can even continue with this plan really fast, I do want to talk about the brood living on a giant space whale that's a sentient ship. My glorious precious Akanti. Oh, Akanti, you stay. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. I will say this, though. The X-Men save Charles and Lalandra without much of a fight or a problem. The brood kind of go down pretty easily, and Lady Deathbird doesn't even put up that much of a fight. One of the reasons that that is so fascinating is because this is the first time that the brood have ever come in contact with the X-Men. And that comes back up in 157. As a matter of fact, Deathbird convinces the brood to not kill her. A stark contrast from the brood saying that we are sworn to serve you just two issues earlier with a warning that should she fail, they'll turn on her, which they did. She uses that as a bargaining chip to get the brood to not kill her. That, oh, mutants, really cool and really special. So I feel like, I don't know if it's that the brood went down easy or if they retreated from a fight they didn't know enough about to genuinely engage in. Well, the brood were pretty scary and they had pretty dangerous weaponry that almost killed Colossus until up until this point, who's never had a moment of actually having to face death because he's so pretty much invincible. But that's that is just my point. It just it felt like a little too waltz on in and save the day and then leave because, well, I guess part of it is the more important action is back on the Shi'ar ship. Absolutely. Saving Earth was much more important than really kind of following up on any of the elements that were set up in the story. In fact, I do think there's a number of things that are left sort of dangling throughout the issue. One of them is Kitty is hit by a laser blast toward the end of the issue and that just sort of goes nowhere. But something that does certainly go somewhere is Xavier uses his psychic abilities in 157 and it results in him being in a catatonic state. Now this catatonic state will continue for several issues across our next few reads. So this is a really certainly lasting consequence of this arc. All in all, I feel like the resolution comes together way too quickly. Kitty's hit by a laser, and then somehow they manage to, like, transport a ship away, and Lalandra's like, nuh-uh, don't you do that. You guys killed my special Chancellor Admiral Araki, and I'm super sad forever, but you guys can't attack Earth now. Wah. It's a weird conclusion, and I don't think it even fits how dynamic we've seen Lalandra be in the past. It just sort of seems like the arc comes to a conclusion. And you know, I just reread it, and I know that I enjoyed rereading it, but I think outside of the Kitty and Kurt scenes, I really don't know that I can say very much that I like about the- Oh, the Storm stuff. 
stuff. I like Storm. I think Deathbird is fun. So yeah, I guess I like huge elements of this arc, but there's a lot of problems in it for me. What about you, Jonah? A couple of the glue pieces for this entire narrative probably could have been replaced with some better stuff. One of the things that I had a problem with is that even though Oracle is saying to them, no, I've read their minds, they're telling the truth, the rest of the Imperial Guards still are very wary, and I kind of get that because part of their job is to be wary and just protect whoever's there for the Shi'ar, but when your psychic is literally saying they're telling the truth, I've actually probed them, there's nothing going on with what they're saying, why why were they really so hesitant to, you know, proceed with their plan? I agree. This is a fun arc with some inconsistent characterization and some off-base plotting, but for the most part, it's a good time. Absolutely, I do agree. I do think this was a fun space issue, despite its few flaws. Hey kids, I'm Matthew, and I'm back with an all-new, all-different X-Rack, but not one from Marvel's all-new, all-different relaunch from a few years back. Nope, I'm going back a bit to Astonishing X-Men 7-12, through 12, the second arc of Joss Whedon's run. I told you he'd be back for more. I will admit up front, this is probably the weakest of Whedon's four arcs, but that's kind of like the weakest person at a bodybuilding competition. They're still pretty damn strong. And while I'm on the subject of disclaimers, if you're reading on Marvel Unlimited, I recommend against using the smart panel view mode, at least for this set of issues. For some reason, it goes wildly out of order on some pages, even going back and forth between pages in some cases. Stick to the full page view and just put it in landscape mode, trust me. And finally, a content warning. A character's suicide is a major plot point of the arc. Now, with all of that out of the way, onto the show. This arc, dubbed Dangerous, brings things home for some fun character interactions and the introduction of one of my favorite recurring characters. Scott's team goes out with the intention of fulfilling his idea of presenting the X-Men as superheroes again. They save the city with an assist from the Fantastic Four, only for the news to completely ignore them. As Scott says, the news already has their story they're just waiting for events to fill in the blanks. Mutants are public enemy, so of course they're not going to get the good press they deserve. It's one of those small moments that makes me absolutely love Scott Summers, followed relatively closely by Scott blasting a sentinel into dust by removing his visor, even Wolverine can't deny being impressed. The story kicks into high gear after that moment. Kitty and the students take refuge from the sentinel attack in the danger room. Turns out the danger room is not only sentient, but also fucking pissed about essentially being enslaved for years and years by Xavier. Through a series of comic book reasons, the danger room has evolved and been able to to create a body for herself with a really cool character design. She trounces the X-Men and leaves for Genosha to confront Xavier. Her fight with the Astonishing team is one of the best in comics as far as I'm concerned, with superb execution by both writer and artist. I love Danger's line, they're not in the danger room anymore, they're in danger, noting how even with all of her experience training them, she's still surprised by them, and they even managed to hurt her. Following that, the team pursues her to Genosha in a Fantastic Four jet, which makes the start of the arc a nice piece of setup. The big fight of the arc happens with Danger summoning the very sentinel that slaughtered 16 million mutants living in Genosha. It's intense, and it involves several moments that set up the back half of Whedon's entire run, including a very brief shot of Emma collapsing to the ground crying. Mm. My love of this arc hinges on Danger herself. She is, in many ways, what Adam from Season 4 of Buffy the Vampire Slayer could have been. Yes, she's another evil robot out to kill humanity. Well, mutants at least. But she's more than that. She's an abused child. She was trapped and isolated by Xavier for years, despite his knowing she was awake. He, of course, excuses his behavior, but Danger is all the more sympathetic because of that. Plus, she's incredibly badass. Even without the full range of her Danger Room abilities, she still beats the daylights out of the whole team, very nearly killing them. Very nearly. Key words, and that'll come up as a plot point later on. I will admit, I don't fully follow how pushing Wing to kill himself gave her an opening to full control, but it's comic books. It makes about as much sense as anything else, and it works narratively. Besides, she's space tech. It's magic. Just roll with it. 
Dangerous is a fun arc. It admittedly isn't anything earth-shatteringly feelsy, but it does introduce an incredible reoccurring character with a great motivation, and has some high-quality character beats throughout. For example, Emma consistently referring to Kitty as Kitten warms my heart for some reason, even if Kitty herself probably wants to stab Emma every time she does it. That's all for now. As always, you can find me on Instagram at homo. Cosplay season is coming up, and I've got some fun ones in the works. Come back next time where I'll be discussing the origin of everyone's favorite Canadian furball. No, not Puck. The one who, and I'm quoting, really likes beer. Jonah, it was so much fun getting to talk about just the X-Men for a change. And until we get back here to talk about the next three issues in Claremont's ongoing Uncanny Saga, where can everybody find you online? Despite my namesake, you cannot find me in a giant space whale. You can actually find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me here on this fine network making shows like AlienLegacy.html where my husband and I take a look at the alien and predator franchises you can also find me on now and again where we talk about pop music as well as on a number of other shows and the other feeds of x's for podcast don't forget to check out my instagram at nico action n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n or my super awesome diverse webcomic kid riot over at kid all right guys until next time we'll see ya see ya